0: I'd ask you to please really stand with me at a reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Uh, we're continuing today in our studies of Acts, and we'll be looking at, uh, at, at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, And seeing signs and great miracles he performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. Now Simon, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy word, help us, Lord, to see the truths in your word about who Jesus Christ is and the forgiveness that he offers. Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts as you moved in Philip's heart. Lord, equipping him and empowering him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray also that you would move Holy Spirit in the hearts of all who are hearing, that that we would receive and believe Jesus Christ in the fullness of who he is. That your spirit would work in us. For those who are truly saved, reminding us of the Salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus. And for those who are not yet saved, working a, a wondrous power of regeneration, that we might see revival in our midst much the same as, as took place in Samaria. We pray that for our church. We pray that for the, the other churches who are gathered together this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, proclaiming faithfully your word. We pray that there would be revival in this city. Revive our hearts, we pray. Lord, if there are any here who are in the the bitterness of unforgiveness and uh, the bitterness uh, of their hearts of uh, the bondage of sin, who even those who profess faith in Christ but do not truly know you, we we pray that you would work in your spirit bringing conviction, also bringing repentance and faith, that we might with one voice, through the power of the gospel, glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in Mm -hmm. whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's January 1st, 2023. And I wonder what New Year's resolutions are you going to make or, or have you made? Now I realize, I'm, I'm, I'm a realist, I realize that, that most New Year's resolutions don't even make it out of the month of January. I know that I made plenty of, of New Year's resolutions when I was an unbeliever They didn't even make it out of the first week of the new year. Really, as, as the turning of the calendar happens, it's natural for the, for the, the people who, who are reflecting on the passing of time to reflect. And it's also a time of anticipation of, of what's to come. It's also a time for reevaluation of our, our patterns, our, our habits, and our lives. It's a time for the adoption of, of new habits and, and new patterns in our lives. But as an unbeliever, I couldn't really make any of the changes that that I was beginning to realize that I should make because I was relying on my own strength. I was relying on me instead of seeking strength from God. Now, since most of us here are are Christians, we have the ability to to be able to make changes through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. And because we're Christians, for most of us, the, the kind of New Year's resolutions... That that we're going to make are are, are not going to be they're, well. They're not going to be tend to tend to be worldly resolutions. They're not going to be fleshly resolutions. They're going to be spiritual. We're not going to be thinking. Well, I want to put on, I want to have 15 inch biceps. You know, in the in the coming year, or I'm gonna I'm gonna have a six figure income by the end of the year, or I'm gonna win friends and influence people in the coming year. This is the kind of things that, that worldly people make, but, but hopefully as Christians, we're making more spiritual resolutions. Now, I'm sure that there is a, a, ma- a range of spiritual resolutions that, that people are making in their church, not just today on January the 1st, but, but every day, at least I hope there are. But as I look out at you, I can, I think I can probably pick for most of you three of the top five resolutions from many of us here. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but I think this I hope anyway this will resonate with you that, that three of your top five resolutions are that I want to read the Bible more regularly that I want to spend more time in heartfelt prayer and I want to tell more people about the gospel of Jesus Christ you okay, don't have to nod your head or raise your hand but I, I hope, hope those are at least three of, of the, the top five resolutions that, that you have made and the good news brothers and sisters, is that these resolutions are also God's will for you. And the the even better news is that God does not just leave you to try to muddle through and try to to do these things in your own strength. He has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you. He will help you to make really whatever spiritual changes that, that you want to make in your life Provided there in accordance with him and his word. In fact, if you have desires for spiritual growth, desires for, for sanctification, in your relationship with God and your relationship with others, it's pretty safe to say that the God is the one who's put those desires there in your heart in the first place. As he's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So God will help us to make changes. God will help us to grow in christ this. We are predestined not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Predestined to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, to be more Christ-like. And as I was sharing with, with somebody this past week, even, even if you, even if you lived two million more years, you would continue to progress in your sanctification. You'd never arrive at perfect sanctification because the infinite value and, and Sanctification, the holiness of Christ is infinitely above any human being, but you will continue to grow and grow and grow through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. And we could take hope, we could take comfort in that. But we also have to recognize that not only will God help us to make changes, but quite often He'll do so by placing us in less than comfortable circumstances. God often puts us in difficult places and circumstances in order to further his work in and through us. I know the Lewis family would would acknowledge that. I know the Morayas family would say that as well. I know the Cross family would say that. And and as I I reflect in my life, not in in just the, the past year, but really over my whole life as a Christian, My times of greatest growth have come in difficult times. and That has been especially true in in times in my my growth in the word and prayer. I'm the most eager to run to the Bible. Most eager to, to go to God in prayer when I've been walking through a trial. And I know that many of you can relate to that. But it's also true that I've been the most eager to share my faith with others in times of trial. Now, I don't know exactly why that is. I've got a couple of ideas. I know at least in, in part it's 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 because I'm I'm more likely to be in a position to encounter others who need to hear the gospel when I'm also walking through a trial. It's also in part because in those moments I'm likely to be less consumed with selfishness. It's because in those moments I'm I'm more likely to be consciously relying on the Lord's strength. And really, it's probably a combination of, of all three and a, and a host of, of other things that the Lord is, is doing in my heart. But I've found that the most amazing, most fruitful gospel conversations I've had have been when I've been facing adversity. I wonder if you can relate to that. I know our, our brothers and sisters who are facing serious persecution would say that. I know our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan would say that in many other parts of the world where it is a a crime that is punishable by imprisonment and torture and death for following Christ. I know that they would say that even under those circumstances that they are emboldened to share their faith with others. It's also true in our passage here this morning, the first half of Acts chapter 8. It was a time of, of persecution in the church. And in fact, this was the first major persecution of the church. Stephen has just been stoned to death outside of the walls of Jerusalem for bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, as much, as much as Jesus Christ himself was crucified outside the walls of the city. Stephen was really the first Christian to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ all the way to the grave. Many more would follow. It was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so the church was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul was ravaging the church and dragging men and women off to prison. And so the Christians fled Jerusalem. But as they fled Jerusalem, they took the gospel with them. As Christians spread throughout the region... The gospel also spread throughout the region. The great persecution was going to lead to great revival. As we began to look at Stephen in Acts chapter six, I quoted the early church father Tertullian, who said that the the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of the of Christians is seed. This is often paraphrased as the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the seed of Stephen's blood is going to bring a harvest of souls into the kingdom of God. And we see that beginning to happen here in Acts chapter 8. This is a pattern that we'll we'll really see in in the rest of our study in Acts, that as one door closes to the gospel through the rejection of God's people, another door opens somewhere else. As one commentator said, God and the gospel are not defeated by human opposition, however evil and intense. The efforts of the Sanhedrin and Saul to halt the preaching of the gospel, to wipe the early church out, only resulted in expansion and wider impact. David Peterson explains that persecution leads to gospel growth, not because a mission plan is approved and put into action by the leaders of the church, but because ordinary believers take opportunities given to them to preach the apostolic message wherever they go. Derek Thomas likewise exhorts us, this should be an example to every Christian today. Like the early disciples, we too must take the gospel with us wherever we go and speak about Jesus in our day-to-day conversations with those whom we meet. This is the most effective evangelism of, of all, in quote. Do realize that you take the gospel with you wherever you go. We are jars of clay. We show that the power is of God and does not belong to us. We are ambassadors for Christ going with us with the the truths of God's word in our hearts and the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. So you, in reality, take the gospel with you wherever you go. May God help us all to be conscious of that fact. And to walk in, in not in our own strength and trying to, to say, oh, I need to share the gospel with that person just because it's, you're trying to get a pat on the back or, or earn points with God, but as one who's been purchased by the blood of Christ through the free gift of the gospel, is now eager to share that gift with others, to share Christ with others, the treasure of Christ that you have been given, the greatest treasure you can, you can and ever will receive. The reality is that the vast majority of Christians are not in vocational ministry. I read somewhere that by 99.9% of, of Christians are, are not, they're, they're not paid pastors and, and missionaries. They're you. I've said this so many times from Ephesians four eleven and 12. I am, I am the associate minister. You are the ministers. My job, my task is to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of ministry, including and even especially evangelism. Now, of course, as part of the church, I'm I'm involved in in ministry and evangelism as well, but this is something that is, this is not just for the the pastor, it's for all of us, it's for all Christians. The vast majority of of my time is, is spent in the church and among other Christians, so you have a leg up on me. Because you are the ones that are engaged in full-time secular employment. You are the ones who are out there in the grocery stores, in the banks, and the barbershops. You have opportunities. Well, some of us barbershops. I see some heads that probably don't need much time at barbershops. But you, you get the point. Again, you have an advantage. You're out there already. Bringing the gospel with you. You know, I sent this out in an email to you all yesterday, but will you join me in praying for the evangelistic efforts of this church? That's you. That's me. That's us. Will you join me in actively seeking opportunities this year to share the love of Christ with each other and with outsiders, people outside of the church, especially unbelievers, for the glory of God? Will you join me for praying and praying for revival in this church and in this city? Will you make that a New Year's resolution? Trusting that God will help you to remember to pray and to actually pray. In our passage this morning, we witness revival in Samaria. Now, the significance of, of Samaria on a level might not seem like, like such a, a big deal to, to you and me. But think back to our studies of Luke that we did recently, and think about about who the Samaritans were from the perspective of those living in the, the predominantly Jewish culture. A little bit of history here: the, the Samaritans were they originated with the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, who split off from loyalty to the line of, of King David, somewhere around the year around the, around the 700s, 8th, 8th century B.C. They set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which was, was really in opposition to, to the, the real temple in Jerusalem. And when the Syrians invaded, invaded Samaria, they deported. Thousands of people, thousands of, of Samaritans, they deported back to Assyria. And then they replaced those Samaritans in Assyria with, with pagans from all other, other regions that the Assyrians had conquered. This is something that, that, that happens quite a bit in war. You see it happening in Ukraine even now. But what happened was when the Samaritans were then subsequently released from Assyria, they went back to their homeland and found it now indwelt with 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 all kinds of, of pagans, and they began to intermarry with, with these pagans and to adopt the pagan practices of those nations. And meanwhile, you have the, the remaining tribes centered around Jerusalem and, and trying to hold fast to the word of God. And so the religion of Samaria became a, a syncretistic blend of, of paganism and Judaism. So much so that, that when, in the time of the, the Maccabean rebellion, when the, the Maccabees were fighting against, against the, the Greek um, usurpers, the, and they tried to, to get them to, to co-opt and adopt uh, Greek, Greek religion, pagan religion, the, the, the people in Samaria gladly accepted and, and committed their temple to Zeus. And so you can understand the the animosity that the Jews held towards the Samaritans. They looked at them at, at best and, as 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 pagan half-breeds. There was so much racism that was going on but between these two cultures. And that hatred continued all the way to the time of Jesus. When remember when we we looked at at uh, in Luke chapter 9 how with a, if if a Jew was on, on pilgrimage from Galilee To Jerusalem he would walk an extra three days to go around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much and that that hatred was mutual. So that's that's the context of of what is taking place here in Acts chapter 8. So as we'll see this this is a pivotal event as these these Jewish Christians Remember we talk about the diaspora. These are Christian diasporas. They were they had to flee for their lives out of Jerusalem, as they now arrived in Samaria and other regions, bringing the gospel with them. This is a pivotal moment. It's really the next stage in in Jesus' commission to the the apostles and to the church for Acts chapter one eight. Remember, this is this it, it, it this is really a framework verse for really the the whole uh, of the book of Acts. But you'll receive. Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what we see here with Acts chapter 8 is really the next phase, chapter 2. As the gospel is now going into Samaria, into this this region that was, was a, a mix of, of Judaism and paganism. It's because of this persecution that has taken place. The gospel of Jesus Christ is now going into Samaria, and we're going to see revival in Samaria. But as we're also going to see, there is revival. With the revival comes further opposition, like that with Ananias and Sapphira. The opposition, though, instead is from being from the outside. The opposition is from the inside, or at least appears to be from the inside. Really two main sections in this passage. Bearing witness Jesus Christ is really the central theme of this passage. The concept of bearing witness for Christ is highlighted in verses 5 and 12, 4, 5, 12, and 25. It's it's really not just the central theme of this passage, but it's the central theme of Acts, bearing witness for Jesus Christ. Last time, remember, we focused on the witness of Jesus Christ by Stephen, who was stoned to death for his witness for Christ. He became the church's first martyr, which means, from the original Greek, means witness. This morning we're going to be focusing on the witness of Philip in verses 4 to 13 and the witness of Peter in verses 14 to 25. And again, we're going to see that that the, the witness and the response to the witness is empowered by the Holy Spirit. By contrast, we're going to see what happens in the heart of a person in whom the Holy Spirit is not at work. So then verses 4 to 13, the witness of Philip. Again, we've talked about the Jewish diaspora. This is a a Christian diaspora. These these Christians have spread from Jerusalem. These these Jewish Christians have spread from Jerusalem and they've gone into Samaria bringing the gospel with them. They were scattered because of the persecution in Jerusalem and so wherever they went, they bore witness of Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, it says that those who were scattered were went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. And that's actually not the best translation because when you think of the word preaching, what do you think of? You probably think of what's happening right now. Of of a pastor standing behind the pulpit. But the Greek word is is actually euangelio. They went about evangelizing. They went about evangelizing. They told the people the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 tells us the content of that good news. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Who's Philip? we were introduced to Philip back in chapter 6. He, along with Stephen, was one of the seven men identified as having a good reputation, being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and was given the task of caring for the Hellenist widows in the church. So what we're seeing here, again, is exactly what Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8, that the apostles and subsequently the church would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. We're going to see that progression all the way through to the end of Acts. Now, earlier I mentioned that that the Samaritan religion was was a blend of Judaism and paganism. The, the Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were looking for a Messiah, not, um, not in the line of the Davidic king. Remember, they had rejected the Davidic kingship, but they were looking for a prophet like, the, a prophet like Moses in the fulfillment of the promise of Deuteronomy 18.15. So they weren't all wrong. Just they only had part of the picture. You can re- read more about, about the Samaritans and, and their beliefs in John chapter 4 and how Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman at the well. So Jesus was a prophet, but he's also a king. And so much more. But the Samaritans missed it. And I can't help but wonder if, if Philip spoke to them about Jesus from Deuteronomy 18, using their own scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet, like Moses, whom the people would listen to. But notice the pattern. Again, we've seen this so often in Acts. It's, it's sign followed by proclamation. Right? Notice notice here in, in, verse, in verse 6. That the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then verse 7 describes some of the signs that are taking place. Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, so that many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So here we're seeing God's authority over the demonic. Remember, we've seen that happen quite a bit in Jesus' ministry, how he cast out demons. Even he cast a a legion of demons, 2,000 demons out of of the the Gadarene demoniac. And here we see the followers of Jesus Christ following in his footsteps, much as the apostles had now Philip is not an apostle he is he is in one, in one sense where he's a deacon in the church okay we're seeing a bit of a bridge now here into the, the ministry that would take place in the in the whole church but again these signs if if I mean, if, if you or I if we saw somebody you know Tanner and, and and Cody if we saw them healed and saw them get up out of their wheelchairs. These men are quadriplegics. I mean, I would, we would all rejoice. We would all be be amazed and, and praise God. If we saw somebody who had been possessed by a demon, we saw the, the demon cast out of that person, we would we'd be gobsmacked. But the focus in our lives, as was here in Samaria, must not be the signs. It's the word of God. The signs were meant to, to authenticate the, the message and the minister of the message. The, the signs there pointed to the fact that this particular individual, in this case Philip, was, was given authority by God as a messenger of Jesus Christ, as a witness for Jesus Christ. And that was extremely important in that time before the closing of the canon of the scripture. Right? All they had was the, the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't yet have the New Testament. And so it, it, we d- they didn't have all of God's word to, to measure up and to see, okay, how does this person, how is, this, what, how is what this person saying and what he's doing, how does that line up with the word of God, especially as, as the word of Christ? Right now, we, we don't need signs. We now compare everything that someone says by the word of God. How does what this person, how is what this person is doing or saying particularly How does that line up with the gospel about who Jesus Christ is from his word? We we talked about this extensively last Sunday. People have all kinds of theories, all kinds of ideas as to who Jesus Christ is. But if it is not the Jesus of the Bible, then it is a false Jesus. It's a God of their imagination. So again, we have the word of God. And these signs in that time, in that transition period, pointed to the, the authenticity of the messenger and his message. The focus is ultimately on the word of God. So Luke here is demonstrating that Philip, like Stephen, is powerful in word and deed and much like the apostles who've gone before. But Philip here receives an entirely different response from that which Stephen received. Stephen was killed for his effort. But here the people rejoice. Here they rejoice. Friends, don't don't be hung up on how people respond to the message. By God's grace, faithfully communicate the message and leave the results to God. Don't be jealous of those who have a, or envious of those who who have a, a different response to the proclamation of the word. The crowds paid attention to what Philip said when they heard him. When they saw the signs. But notice that they had not yet come to faith. This was a prelude to faith. They heard him. They listened to him. But there's no testimony here of them yet being saved. But now in verse 9, we meet Simon. Who is in every way contrasted with Philip. And contrasted with the revival that took place in Samaria. Luke tells us that Simon had practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria. His pride and his self-promotion was on full display when he himself bore witness of himself. He said, I am somebody great. Somebody goes around telling you, telling you how great they are. Take note. And the people agreed with it. They, they agreed with his testimony. Is they also said that he's somebody great. We're told that he was doing magic, and and now this is this is not this is not the kind of magic like a magic show, like hey, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. This is sorcery. This is witchcraft. this this was real magic, which God calls wicked but is celebrated in our culture through so much of our, of our media, in books and, and in movies. But God calls it wicked. The second century church father, Justin Martyr, who was, was, as a matter of fact, was also a Samaritan, wrote that Simon was empowered by demons to perform magic. He also testified that he was the founder, that Simon was the founder of Gnosticism, which is a, a heretical movement that besieged the early church. Now there, there's no clear evidence of the of the latter association. There's no evidence, at least that I'm aware of, that, uh, that many who many know a lot more about these things than me. There's no clear evidence that Simon was indeed directly related to Gnosticism. But Simon clearly was empowered by demons. But the people, again, were, were nonetheless, they were impressed by him. Remember, in syncretism, there's a place for all kinds of things. And, and you can actually embrace, take a bit of this, and a bit of that, and leave behind what you don't like. And, and these people liked what they saw. They liked the power that they saw in Simon. So again, they too said, this man is, this man is the power of God that is called great. In other words, they believed that Simon actually wielded the power of God. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed Philip's evangelism. Again, it's the same word as in verse 4. And they were baptized. Now baptism, Lord willing, you get to see a baptism next Sunday. Baptism baptism is a picture of somebody's union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Baptism is is a picture of what has already taken place in the person's heart that that they are unified with Christ. That they are saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I am with him in his death and his resurrection. It's a picture of the new birth. It's a picture of regeneration which takes power, takes place through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these men and women were, were lining up to get baptized. To say, I belong to Jesus. I'm born again. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I, I don't, I don't want to live for self anymore. I don't want to practice paganism anymore. I want to follow the one true faith, faith in Jesus Christ. I want to live my life for him. That's what they were saying. But now we're told in verse 13 that even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Can you imagine how excited the people would have been? Even the great Simon Magus has become a Christian. Or so it would seem. If you read carefully here, there's a couple of red flags there for you to notice. Luke gives us a hint that not is all as it seems. All is not as it seems. First, notice that Simon is mentioned on his own, apart from the rest of, of the Samaritan converts. Second, notice that there is no mention of the content of Simon's belief. Look look at the the detail in verse 12. The others had believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Very detailed what they actually believed. Compared to verse 13, Simon believed. And notice too that Simon's attention is not on Jesus Christ. He is drawn by the signs and the great miracles. And, And he followed Philip around like like a groupie or or like a creepy stalker. Luke is showing us here Simon's motivation. You see, the, the attention of the people had previously been on Simon. And now it was transferred to Philip, or more specifically, transferred to Jesus Christ. And Simon was jealous. He had been called great. He had called himself great. And now he saw true greatness and he wants it for himself. Furthermore, as it become clear in a few moments, Simon's belief itself must be called into question. Mere belief is not enough. Even the demons believe, we're told, and shudder. James 2.19. Faith without works is dead. Well, so now Philip fades to the background. It won't be mentioned again until verse 26. And the focus shifts to the witness of Peter, verses 14 to 25. And again, as we follow through here, take special note of the work of the Holy Spirit and what happens in those in whom the Holy Spirit is not at work. When word got back to Jerusalem about what had taken place in Samaria, the church dispatched Peter and John. I remember quite often we've seen in Acts Peter and John together, two of the, the lead apostles ministering alongside each other. They, they sent Peter and John to check it out to see what was going on. Remember, these were Samaritans. This was, this was something new. Now, John himself here is an interesting choice. Remember how back in Luke chapter 9, he and his brother James, when the Samaritans had rejected Jesus, he and James wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritan village. What does Jesus do? He, He doesn't rebuke the Samaritans. He rebukes James and John. This is actually the last time that we see John in and Acts, and, uh, except for a brief mention in Acts chapter 12 when we're told that his brother James is martyred. Peter and John are here as, as an endorsement of Philip's mis- ministry and message, as confirmation that, that, these, that, that Philip is continuing in the same ministry, in the same message that the apostles themselves were engaged in. But notice something very interesting here. Peter and John prayed that the Samaritan converts would receive the Holy Spirit. He had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd only been baptized. They hadn't yet been and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so the, the apostles, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and these men and women received the Holy Spirit. But what's going on here? Prior to the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would fill but not indwell believers. Remember, we we talked about that extensively in in Luke chapter 2 or in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit would, would fill a believer, empowering him or her for a specific time for a specific purpose. And it was primarily kings and and priests and prophets. But now on the day of Pentecost, all that changed. In the fulfillment of the prophecy that was written by the prophet Joel, all believers, as of the day of Pentecost, were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be with them permanently. As Peter said in Acts two thirty-eight to forty, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." For the promise is for you and for all your children who are for and all who are far off, everyone on whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. But here, the Samaritan believers repent and believe and are baptized, but don't yet receive the Holy Spirit right away. So why is that? Why? What's taking place here? And I think it's, it's helpful. You need to, to take a step back and think about the Book of Acts in its entirety, and specifically again think back to Acts chapter one eight. And you'll be my and you you'll be filled by the Holy Spirit. You'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And Samaria and to the other most parts of the earth. Again, this is a kind of a framework for the book of Acts. And so the witness has now moved to Samaria from Jerusalem. This is a sign that the Samaritan phase of the spread of the gospel has arrived. It's a sign that, the, again, the, the Samaritans are now receiving the gospel and they're, they're hearing the witness of Jesus Christ and they're coming to faith. And so this is this is parallel to Pentecost. It's like Pentecost chapter 2. So first it was on the day of Pentecost with the Jews in Jerusalem, here with the Samaritans, and then guess what? We'll see the same thing happening with Cornelius the Gentile in Acts chapter 10, and we'll see it happen again in Ephesus with the disciples of, of John the Baptist in Acts 19, representing the uttermost parts of the earth. And so remember, that, that again, you need to consider all of the You need to consider this passage in light of the whole of Acts, especially in terms of of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As Sinclair Ferguson cautions, we should no more anticipate a personal Pentecost than we will experience a personal Jordan, a personal wilderness, a personal Gethsemane, or a personal Golgotha. Many of our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters believe in a, a subsequent move of the Holy Spirit. There's a focus on this, on this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It takes place subsequently, but th- this is not what is taking place here. This passage is not even talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The great privilege which all believers now enjoy. Can we see the same thing throughout Acts? This passage does not provide any basis for a subsequent move of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. There's no, there's not a second blessing. There's a first blessing. And remember that the book of Acts is a narrative. It is not normative. Right? When you're, when you're studying a narrative in the Word of God, you, you can't pick and choose and pull out individual verses and, and make that a requirement for you. You need to look and compare with other passages of Scripture. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is describing what took place. It's not saying that it always happens that way. What took place here was unique in redemption history. Unique. This is not something that we should be looking for again and again and again. In fact, if you look, if you can look throughout the book of Acts, you can see repeatedly that the people received the Holy Spirit without ever having an apostle lay hands on them. This was something unique. Again, this is not a justification for a second blessing or a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. All Christians have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But now in verses 18 and 19, the focus again shifts back to Simon. And notice how when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, give me this power also. So that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. We're seeing now in the fullness what Luke was hinting at earlier. Simon was envious of the power that he saw being wielded by the apostles, and he wanted a piece of the action. He wanted his influence over the Samaritans back. He'd lost the power and authority he had when Philip came with the message of the gospel. And so he followed, followed Philip around trying to figure it out. And when the apostles came and, and people, and they and they laid hands on the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit, and, they, and he, saw, he saw what had happened through the Holy Spirit in the life, he said, I want some of that. I want that back. I want that for me. There's a parallel here with, with Ananias and Sapphira who were jealous of Barabbas and tried to use their money to gain favor in the church and were struck dead by God. Simon wanted some of the power for himself. He wanted to be a great man once again. But he had no idea of true greatness. He had no idea who God was. He was committing blasphemy. He was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He thought... That the power of the Holy Spirit was just another act of sorcery that could be put, purchased by money. And his, his offer of, of money uh, to give the power, to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, became notorious in church history. And as I, I explained to the children, that, that, especially in the Middle Ages and in the Roman Catholic Church, this gave rise to the, to the name Simony, for the attempt to, to purchase spiritual position as I also explained to the kids, that this is happening today. You turn on late night TV and you see Peter Popoff. I wish Peter would pop off. makes me so angry. Offering, telling people, send me money and I will give you holy water, money that Peter Popoff has blessed. They'll cure whatever ails you. It's snake oil. Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and these guys who were all in it for money. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And they're dragging people to hell with their false gospel. It's a damnable heresy. And it is rampant in the church. False teachers with the prosperity gospel. This is a pagan religion with a Christian veneer. But too often, even in, in so-called conservative churches, we, we see another form of, of this Simony. One church that I attended, you could, you could tell when, the, when there was an elders' meeting by the cars in the parking lot. All the fancy cars were there when there was an elder meeting. The men who were 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 a number of the men who were elders were there as elders, not because of their spiritual qualifications, but because they had money and they were influential in the community. That's simony. May God protect us and keep us from Simony in all its forms. Again, I, I, I say these things and they 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 it bothers me. And I, I really I really hope this is righteous anger. Because I, I realize that, that I am capable of this and much, much worse. But for the grace of God go I. I have no I have no claim to any righteousness of my own. I cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm dependent. I said to somebody the other day, the the guy who's standing here preaching got saved in a psychiatric hospital. I've got nothing of my own ideas to to bring before you. I just have the word of God. Peter responds here with one of the, the most powerful rebukes you can find in all of Scripture. Verses 20 and 21, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter is essentially saying here, and this is hard for even to repeat, he's saying you and your money can go to hell. That's what he's saying to Simon. May you and your money go to eternal destruction. And he says, you have neither lot nor part in this matter. He's saying, you have no part in the gospel. You have no part in the Holy Spirit. You have no part in Jesus Christ. You're outside of the faith. You may have been baptized, but it means nothing. Because your faith is not true faith. You know, I can can think back. I I know of, of... Two individuals, why baptized that have completely rejected the faith? It breaks my heart. I'm very, very concerned about a third. Now I don't know. I don't know how how Philip a- a- allowed Simon to to slip through the cracks and get baptized but I I take some heart and some comfort in the fact that I'm not the only one who blows it on these days. You have no other partner, lot in this matter except because your heart is not right before God. Now if you were a Christian you've been given a new heart. The Holy Spirit has taken out from you that the stony heart of rebellion against God has given you a heart that loves God and wants to to worship God. Now I understand that there's still a sense in the the already not yet that that our heart is still a factory of idols that we still our, our heart at, at, at times still turns out things that that dishonor God. But ultimately, by the God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are right with God because of God, the Holy Spirit, and His work in our hearts, His regenerating work. In our hearts, but not Simon. Peter goes on. He says, "For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness. You know, were warned in, in Hebrews to be careful lest a root of bitterness rise up among us to defile many. Bitterness. It t- bitterness tastes good in your mouth." But it'll rot your soul. It feels good. And maybe you feel justified entertaining bitterness because someone did something against you and, and, and how you, you feel that you should be treated. And it feels good to rehearse that in your, in your mind, to, to, to act as judge, jury, and executioner in your mind, because that's really at root what bitterness is. But it will destroy you and will destroy those around you. And here it's destroying Simon. In the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. If you are a Christian, you have been set free from bondage to sin. Christ has paid the debt of canceled sin as we sing. The sin that no longer has any power over you if you are now in Christ Jesus. You have died to sin and are alive by God's grace to Jesus Christ and so you are no longer in a bondage to sin but Simon still was in bondage to sin. But there's also so this, this is a harsh rebuke but notice here the grace that's here and the mercy that's here again beginning of verse 22 repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Again, Peter's offering him the chance to repent. He's reminding him that you can go to God. You can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And what does Simon do? Verse 24. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And I wrestled o- over this, this passage and I, I studied this. I was like, okay, what, what is going on here? And I, I read many commentaries on this, and I and, and there was a, a really really almost total agreement. This is not repentance. What? What was Peter's instruction? Repent of this wickedness and pray that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Simon doesn't pray. He says, Peter, you pray for me. You know, on a level he recognizes he can't even pray himself. You pray for me. You can't get into heaven based on somebody else's prayers. Children, your parents pray for you earnestly, daily. But you can't get into heaven based on their prayers. It's based on your prayer. Now, their prayers can be a huge means of grace. There's many, many people that, 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 where the, the Lord has answered the prayers of, of believing parents and they have themselves come to repentance and faith and they have prayed themselves. But but you can't get into heaven based on someone else's prayers or someone else's faith. You need to pray yourself. Simon doesn't pray. He says, Peter, you pray. And he's not even asking for, for forgiveness, right? Notice that in the second part of the, of the verse. Pray for me, not that I'll be forgiven. He says, pray for me that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. He's praying to get out of the consequences of his sin. He's not praying to get out of his sin. Now, many of us, at the first part of, 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 our, of our journey of faith was, was realizing that the wages of sin is death. That, that our only hope was to turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ or we were going to hell. But praise God for those who are truly believers that didn't stay there. You weren't just motivated by not wanting to go to hell you became motivated by by what what God who God is and who God is for you in Christ and and what what the gospel means not just to get out of a consequence Luke kind of leaves the the situation with Simon hanging there for us don't really know what happened next to Simon But the gospel continued to advance, verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the Word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they went back to Jerusalem again evangelizing, again carrying the gospel with them. And the Word of God continued to advance. And whatever happened to, to Simon, many Samaritans came to true and living faith. Through the ministry of the apostles. Again, as we close, at a time when when people are making resolutions, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Just you need to make sure that your resolutions need to be in line with God and His Word, and that you're seeking to rely on on God's strength and for for strengthening in, in your heart and your will. But if you're looking for inspiration, for, for a resolution, I, I want to commend to you the resolutions of David Brainerd. Who was a missionary to the natives of New England in the 18th century. who poured out his life into the lives of these natives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who died at the age of, of 29. His life poured out out of love for God and, and love for these men and women. There's really, again, I, he he wrote several, I think 70 different resolutions, and and you can read about it in Jonathan Edwards' biography of David Brainerd. Brainerd died in Edwards' house. But this this one resolution sums up Brainerd's resolutions nicely. He says, I, I, I thought we were to prize the continuation of life only on this account that we may show forth God's goodness and works of grace. To live for showing forth God's goodness and works of grace. David Brainerd, who died at the age of 29, his life showed forth God's goodness and works of grace as many of the natives to whom he ministered came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I visited his grave about know, it was twelve years ago in in Northampton in, in New England. And I reflected on on the life of David Brainerd, twenty nine. In the eyes of the world, it was a waste. This intelligent and godly young man who gave up his life and and poured out his life in obscurity. He he died so young. But God was glorified in the life of David Brainerd. David Brainerd reached out to this people who were lost, far from grace, because he knew the God who had saved him. He personally knew the power of God's grace. He knew that apart from God's grace, he too would be under God's curse, a vile and helpless sinner. this excerpt from his journal. For years he faithfully served, yet for years he saw no visible fruit in his ministry. He ministered to a people whose hearts were hard towards him and the Lord, even questioned his own heart before the Lord again and again, yet he persisted. By God's grace, he persisted. By God's grace, will you and I persist? Will you be resolved to pray for the evangelistic efforts of this church? Will you be resolved to pray for your own evangelistic efforts? Will you trust expectantly that God will work in and through his saints, normal, average, everyday men and women like you and me to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ, to show forth the greatness of God, to show forth God's goodness and works of grace because, brothers and sisters, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. No human being could ever have concocted a message so mysterious and so wonderful that God himself would take on human flesh and die the death that we deserve to die as he handed himself over to death at the hands of his own creation, dying on a tree that he made, bearing the full wrath of God, bearing the full weight of sin for all those who would believe in him would turn from their sin and find new life in him. Holy Spirit, reveal Christ to us. Reveal Christ through us. Help us to go out from here as your ambassadors bearing with us the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go. That we too might show forth your greatness and your goodness. And then we might fade into the background in the shadow of your glory. The light shining upon us and shining through us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.